Hi, and welcome to another episode of Humans Aren't Robots, a series of conversations with designers and creative thinkers uncovering the human elements of teams and modern business practices. I'm your host, Sam Davies, and in today's episode, we speak to Cormac Sheehan, who I met last year live at Pause Fest, which now feels like a very long time ago. This conversation was recorded pre-COVID or pre-COVID in Australia. It's quite interesting going back and listening to these conversations, uh, you know, that happened before such a big change in all of our lives. I really enjoyed talking to Cormac. Cormac has a, a background in music. Uh, he grew up in Ireland and was involved in the, uh, the punk rock scene there. That sort of took him around the world. So Mexico, London, other places. We talked about travel. We talked about his primary business, which is Purpose Communications, which he sees as an ethical marketing agency. We talked about what that means to be an ethical marketer in 2020. 2021 now and we talked about some of his passions so uh, he is involved in an organization called green planet which is a cannabis education and advocacy group and we talked about the legalization of cannabis the uses of the plant outside of just a medical use or recreational use among some other topics we also touched on uh, media narratives talked about some of the things that potentially separate us um, as cultures and as generations and how we can bridge that gap one of Cormac's, I think, uh, threads that run through everything he's done is storytelling through through music, through the work he's doing uh, with his marketing agencies. It was fantastic to chat with Cormac. It was a really interesting conversation, and uh, I look forward to you sharing it. So, without further ado, let's jump in with Cormac Sheehan. Beautiful. So, Cormac, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Here we are, live from Pause Fest. Is it your first time to Pause Fest? It is. Yeah. How have you enjoyed it so far today? It's great. There's been some brilliant speakers. Um, so, we're just talking about Stephanie. Um, Winkler, right? Yeah. Um, from, from Vice. So she was on the podcast last year talking about, uh, so that report that you just mentioned, um, she was talking about that, some of the insights they got, but you just mentioned that um, joy was one of the, the highest uh, rated, I suppose, you know, click-throughs or whatever from content they were posting. Yeah. So in this sort of, you know, clickbait media society, we think that everything to do with anger, rage, all those kind of emotions are what gets a lot of clicks and a lot of readers. But um, what she was talking about was when they looked at the data from the last five years is that t- uh, stories about joy were really highly outperformed ones about anger, sadness, rage, and so on. That, that's brilliant. I think you mentioned sort of vices sometimes uh, culpable for, you know, clickbait headlines I mean they're a media company at the end of the day but one thing I think they do very well is actually create content that is engaging for all these different types of niches so you just mentioned instead of gamer culture and you know there's all these weird worlds that you know I don't know about now but it's I I think so from a a food perspective I'm really into my food and cooking Um, I love the content that Vice produces and it's, it's the type of like through munchies it's the, the type of content that I dreamt existed you know when I was a teenager it just you know it wasn't there in sort of the, the corporate media world you couldn't have had a sort of a you know an action Bronson or these types of shows with people just being themselves as opposed to a you know I'm a TV chef and here's my duh, 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 duh. actually sort of just I don't know free form and oh, I hate the word authentic but you know authentic yeah well that's what they're doing and they've done it since the 90s you know when you first would have started finding the magazine and in places and it's it is new voices it is lesser heard voices and it's the things that people aren't talking about and I think their success as a company is down to um, the fact that they keep reinventing themselves and presenting those new ideas like I tend to be you know pretty uh, 
pretty up with things and, and new trends and so on but I'm always finding out about new things from there so it's a bit of a love-hate relationship I've had a lot of friends who work there you know and I sort of I can you can see a bit behind the fourth wall and what they're doing but at the same time I'm always going back to their YouTube channel I'm always watching their videos so I obviously don't uh, dislike it that much um, so talking about reinventing yourself, I think that's a nice segue into your career. Um, it seems like you sort of uh, worn many hats uh, throughout your uh, professional career. Um, currently, what's your sort of main focus? Um, my main focus at the moment is Green Planet, which is um, all about the cannabis industry, focusing on advocacy and education, trying to get more people involved in it. And a lot of people would have been following what was going on in North America over the last decade or so, and also here in Australia, wondering how they can get involved in it. But they tend to be focused on medical cannabis, which is just one very small part of the whole story. The whole plant has so many applications throughout society, and you know what's going on here in Australia with uh, the fires and sustainability and so on. Hemp and cannabis is a really good answer to that. But at the moment, we see these uh, medical cannabis companies that are basically just a bad photocopy of the pharmaceutical industry. And on the other side, we've got hemp companies that are still stuck in the 70s. And there's not much in between. So I'm interested in trying to promote uh, an idea that cannabis is everything and people can get into it, whether it's industrial, uh, food, um, clothing, um, medicine, recreation, entertainment, all sorts of different things. And so that's the main thing I'm focusing on. there's no money in that. That's just a passion project, to be honest. So my other main thing is Purpose Communications, which is my own uh, marketing agency slash consultancy. Beautiful. Um, I'll, I'll, co- I'll come back to that. But uh, in, in regards to the, you know, the hemp industry and the cannabis industry, so uh, I don't, I don't um, know a lot about the history, but turn of the century, the hemp industry was huge in, in North America, right? So this, this was a booming industry um, that essentially got shut down due to sort of uh, fairly conservative and uh, short-sighted politics. Yeah, a lot of it was racial politics. Um, it was after the Mexican-American uh, War, and there was a huge amount of displaced Mexican people who moved to... So that's like 1890s, is that kind of... Um, from then onwards, yeah. And then um, it became a bit of a scare. You know, same old story, the same tactics they're using today, blaming on the immigrants. And it's um, the, the new people in the country, it was around the time of the Depression, Uh, and the 1920s and so things were going downhill so it's blame it on the new guy and so that's what started happening and um, then they started you know it had it's a it's a creative substance so it was of interest to people in jazz and blues and so on so they're so then they're like look we told you you know it's those those uh, black people trying to corrupt white youth and so at the same time that intersected quite nicely with people's industrial interests it's a much better material than cotton a much better source of paper uh, than cutting down trees and those industrialists financed these propaganda campaigns Um, and interestingly as well the head of uh, what became the FBI they were fighting prohibition and prohibition ended in 1929 they didn't have a boogeyman anymore so cannabis cannabis became their new boogeyman to keep them all in jobs Um, and so yeah it was just this crazy state where for millennia people have been using it uh, for all sorts of things and then for the last hundred years of prohibition has died out and now people are thankfully rediscovering it. I find America such like a it's such a weird, bizarrely amazing place, right? Like you have you know, they they, they, they are leaders in culture in a lot of the world, right? They they come in heavy handed, right, this is not good for people. The rest of the world kind of follows suit. And now they're back again leading sort of, you know, the 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 renaissance of, of, of cannabis and, and especially from a um, a personal use. Um, 
how do you think we're going to go as a as a global culture of changing that story or rewriting that story? Is it, do you think we need to go about actually retelling it or changing the way we talk about cannabis and the plant and its uses? Um, well, something really interesting in, in the Austra- from the Australian perspective is that Australia is one of the highest consumers of cannabis in the world. Um, 35% of people over the age of 14 admit to having smoked weed. Uh, one in 10 people consume it regularly. And, but we don't talk about it, you know? Like, a lot of people who'd be at your, at, in your office, at your job, they'd be doing the same thing as you, but you don't talk about it because there's a lot of stigma. And this was one of the things that we found out with the, the cannabis company, my, my previous company, that we, um, we were telling the story very honestly and very transparently. Uh, myself and a, a biochemist in his uh, 50s, Dr. David Stapleton, and uh, we decided to just wear our hearts on our sleeves and say, we're not going to try and pretend, no, no, we're the, we're the medical good guys. We're not into all that dodgy stuff. We're, you know, we're, we weren't saying we're just the sustainability people. We were like, we need this whole plant. And people responded really well because we made ourselves available on the phone, on the email to answer questions. And it is just storytelling to remove the stigma because it's, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's a panacea. It doesn't fix everything, and it's not good for some people. Uh, but it's mostly safe, and it's mostly harmless. And people are discovering that. The, the highest uh, consumer group for it in North America is women over 50. Yeah, my, my theory on that is that, you know, they, they get to their, their 50s, and they've raised their family. They've possibly sacrificed a career to raise that family. And they're kind of looking around, and their kids have gone to college and so on. They go, what the fuck have I done with my life? And they say, actually, I don't care anymore. I don't, I don't give a fuck, so I'm going to try this. And then they try it. And they're like, that wasn't such a big deal. And then they feel better because so many of us in this crazy global situation are going around holding anxiety. And it's one of the only things I've found in my life that lets me stop thinking about the past, stop thinking about the future and just be where I am. Mm. And it's, it's, kind of, it's very mindful uh, as a substance. And 100%. I think, I think that's why people are getting into it. I think that like, as, a, as a kid growing up in Adelaide, um, the, the stigma around it was really, I think, damaging. I think, I think it really hurts because like, like, I, don't know, I would say 35% is low, right? Like at high school, it would be 80% of people had, you know, at, at least smoked once, but more, most people are smoking throughout high school, right? And, and sort of, you know, you get to that point and then a lot of people go, okay, well, now I'm, I'm over that phase and now I'm a grown up and a professional. But a lot of that is just around the stigma because it's illegal at the end of the day. So, you know, I think a lot of our parents in the, in the boomer generation all smoked and then they got you know well, now we're parents and we do 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 whereas I think that you know, my mum for example would probably benefit from from the use of it but wouldn't do it due to the stigma around it and so changing that conversation is great right it's actually giving people um, know, some experiences that they should be having that they just can't based off culture yeah politics yeah and that's a great um there's a great opportunity for people in the older generations to go well actually no I have tried it and it's fine you know, there's, there's a lot. I, I'm really not into this uh, whole OK Boomer type thing. It's funny, you know, it, it is funny. But um, it's part of, again, the media narrative that sets us all against each other. And we, at this time, we need unity. You know, we don't need separation from each other. And that's one thing that has been pretty great about the Boomer generation is that all through the 60s and 70s, they tried cannabis and they found out that it wasn't a big deal. And they're some of the biggest consumers and biggest growing consumers of it, too. Because, you know, you get to the point where you've lost, like, all this hope. And when, what the, when they grew up, it was you go to college, right? You get your job. Everything's set out. You can have it if you want. That's not the case for us. So they're starting to see that things weren't what I, what I thought they were. They're pushing hard against it. You can see the reaction to things like Greta, Greta Thunberg and all that. 
Uh, but at the same time, they know, they've tried all this, and that's sort of part of the problem. They, they feel being there, done that. But they have a role to play in terms of telling their story, because this kind of thing needs to be done person to person, word of mouth, putting your own name behind it and go, yeah, it's not the boogeyman, it's just a, it's just a plant. Yeah. And, and, and it's a plant that I think for that kind of generation, that kind of age group, like you said, is does give you a sense of mindfulness and can also I don't know, maybe take away some of the indoctrination that you have, you know, as a human living in this world we live in now for 60 years, sort of just, you know, take the, you know, the, the Murdoch press out of your head for a second and just think about some different stuff, right? And go like, okay, well, it's still fun to be alive, right? Like I, th- I think people get to the, that age and often feel as if, you know, now we're trajectory into trajecting towards the end right where it shouldn't be like that every day could be fun interesting yeah Yeah, and they find that it works very well with people in um, cancer sufferers or other people in kind of end of life management who are who are scared of death and so on it it helps them a lot with that yeah what's the um in in the u.s so in uh, california colorado where um you know recreational use has been fully legalized how is the other industry, so the, the, the hemp industry and textiles and other manufacturing, is that, is that booming there as well, or is it more of a focus on recreation? Well, US just legalized hemp for industrial cultivation last year, so that's starting to happen now. Um, but actually, a really good place to look uh, is China, because uh, they've always had an industry going there, so they have the infrastructure. And that's a bit of the issue with Australia. We don't have the infrastructure because the um, you can use every part of the plant. The stalk is great for uh, building materials, but you need a decorticator, which is an expensive piece of machinery. So it's very hard to get your hands on that. So as the infrastructure builds up, it's a bit like 3D printing or something. You know, it was a, it was pretty crazy 10 years ago. Now it's a very common place. So um, I think we'll see more and more of those applications. And the other thing is the luxury and premium end of the market. That's exploding in the US. And uh, there's some really cool stuff happening because, you know, it's the industry and the plant and the substance and the culture has always been very teenage boy. You know, it's Cheech and Chong, it's Snoop Doggy Dog and all stuff which is funny, but it's made for me. You know, it's uh, it's not made for everyone else. And it's very alienating. And that's part that is very stigmatizing, too, because it it seems dangerous and um, slovenly and, you know, not something they want to be associated with. So having that premium end of the market is uh, introducing a lot of people to it in a way that feels safer and more welcoming. I was in LA over the um, over the holidays and, and going into some dispensaries, you know, uh, one called uh, Herbarium, I think, in, uh, in Fairfax. You know, is it, it's like going into a high-end wine store, you know, you've got really uh, knowledgeable people being able to sort of, you know, guide you on, on this crazy assortment of, you know, different ways of consuming it or, or smoking it. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's so far removed from the, you know, Powerade, Bottle Bong, and, you know, as a teenager, right? It's just, it's, it's a different world. Yeah, and that's a great comparison, actually, because um, the way it's traditionally been, you know, getting some cannabis from you don't know what source, you, you don't know what you're getting. It's like wanting to go for, for a beer and ending up drinking a pint of tequila, you know, and you, that's not the effect you wanted. And that's the great thing about those dispensaries in the US. You can go in and you can tell them how, how you feel and they'll tell you what's a good strain because we've all had that experience you know you want to watch a a movie on the sofa and you smoke something and suddenly your head's gone a million miles an hour and you can't sleep for for the whole night because it's a very sativa up type of high or you're at a party and you want to chat to people and you want to you want to feel high and chatty but you you smoke some kind of uh, indicator that you didn't know you were getting the next thing you feel paranoid and you feel a bit sick and everything you say is stupid and a lot of that is just a case of getting the wrong thing yeah and and not knowing what you're getting right so if you know what to expect 
um, you know, it's a, if you're going to, yeah, like you said, if you're going to have four shots of tequila, you're going to be pretty drunk fairly quickly. Whereas if you're, you know, sipping on a, a wine or you know, something, something sort of lower alcohol, but you, you can manage that. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people's negative experiences have come from. Hundred percent, and and it's the process of. Uh, you know, having to buy it off the street, right? You, you're essentially having to deal with people that you, you don't necessarily want to on a day-to-day basis, whereas that it's so civilized to go in and actually you know, purchase it. It, it, it. it changes the whole game. And I think that looking at, you know, the culture in California, obviously California's had a long history of it, but it, it isn't like everybody's just out on the streets smoking other. It's, it's, it's become sort of, you know, just, it, it's like having a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah, which is how it should be. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So um, delving back into the marketing side of, uh, of your life. So how did you get into uh, digital marketing? Like, What's been your career trajectory from that perspective? Oh, this, this is a bit of a long story. I'll, I'll be talking about it in my, in my speech today. But essentially, I started about 12 years ago. I was living in Mexico. It was after the GFC and I'd finished my master's degree in, uh, in English. And I'd been working as a teacher and a music journalist. Um, I went on tour with my band in Mexico. Um, I didn't really have anything to go back to in Dublin. So I just stayed there um, and I sort of naively thought it would be easy to move there because I'd previously moved to Copenhagen, but it's a very different scenario. Wait, wait, Mexico City or? Mexico City, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, everything is networks, everything is family connections. I couldn't find a job, couldn't find a place to live. So staying with friends after a um, month or so, I gave up and did a trade with a language school in Oaxaca, learned Spanish. Uh, intensively five hours a day for a month until I was semi-fluent and eventually found myself working on um, a water irrigation project in Chiapas um, with an indigenous group called the Tzotzil and this was like really hard backbreaking work um, that they were doing there they were subsistence farmers um, for coffee and they could only get all the men in the village together one day a week to uh, work on the water project digging trenches putting pipes in and so on um, so all the rest of the time I was working with them on their coffee, just harvesting and learning about how all that worked. And the problem was that they had no market for it. You know, everything in Mexico is corrupt as fuck. It's, if you don't have a brown paper envelope with money in it, you can forget about it. Yeah, okay. So they couldn't get uh, any purchase from the coffee barons in San Cristobal. Um, and, you know, this, they had a great story, they had a great product, but they just couldn't sell it. And this kind of stuck with me. And at that point, like my background is in the hardcore punk scene. Business was the worst four-letter word for me. It was, you know, one step away from capitalism and everything. So I, um, but this scenario haunted me after I left there. So I decided I needed to learn business skills. So I moved to London and started teaching at a place called London Institute of Technology and English. Uh, and I was teaching business English. And I realized that marketing was what I was good at and enjoyed. So then I started learning about that, uh, moved to Australia in 2010, uh, got a job with a chocolate company called Loving Earth, who sourced a lot of their ingredients from South America and Mexico. Um, I was just working on the factory floor there, soon became supervisor. There was less than 15 people working there, no one was doing their marketing. So I started moonlighting, doing the uh, newsletters and social media. Quickly, grew very quickly, soon had a team of six people. Uh, I stayed there for five years, left in 2015. There was more than 70 people working there by then. And um, then I got a series of jobs with you know, ethical recruitment, um, marketing consultancies, sustainability consultancies, um, all sorts of different things like that, fair trade certification, until I felt I had enough skills myself in 2017 to start uh, Purpose Communications. 
and that was with the lofty goal of being uh, Australia's most ethical marketing agency, which is perhaps uh, a, a bit of a contradiction in terms, because you know, marketing is marketing. But um, wanting to to work for purpose, work for uh, meaning, and do things which improve the world uh, rather than just make money. I'm really interested in this idea that because I, I don't I don't necessarily think marketing is a dirty word at all. I think advertising potentially is a dirty word, but I think marketing at its core is storytelling. How, how do you feel as if the um, like the DIY punk ethic has helped you in business? Because I, I, I see it as being actually a, a really good education for business. Yeah, a hundred percent. If you don't uh, like what you see, do it differently. Yeah. You know, if no one's doing what you want to be out there, why don't you do it yourself? And it's why I have very little patience with, with moaners and people giving out about things. It's like, if you don't like it, change it. And so um, the DIY punk ethic informs everything I do. It, it gave me a lot, of, um, a lot of confidence to do that from you know, putting on gigs and doing your own fanzines and so on. That's where it all started for me. Until you realize it's not such a big deal. Anyone can do it. Yeah, I, I, I often think that I, I mentor marketing students um, in Adelaide and the stuff they learn at school is, is okay, but it's, it, it, you're better off actually going, right, go start something and, and, and make it happen, right? Yeah. You know, go and start a band and put flyers out and sell t-shirts and you know, that, that's, that's marketing. Yeah. That, that's the process. It, it's, a, it's a living, growing discipline all the time. And every time people go, and, and no offense if you have done your education in marketing, but I think by the time you graduate, it's moved on. And so the best way to learn is on the job. And, you know, and you can learn. And that's the great thing about the digital economy now because I have, a, again, a love-hate relationship with the internet. And it's, there's so many great things about it. But the way it's pushing society, again, it's um, informed by the bottom line. So if someone can make money off it, they will. And there's not necessarily going to be any ethics around that. But on the other hand, we have the world at our fingertips. You can learn anything, you can publish anything, you can connect with like-minded people and that leads to all sorts of amazing things and that's why we're, we're seeing such great creativity now in new ideas which we're going to need for this coming decade where people can address the problems and the challenges we're seeing it's such a strange time we live in i think we're probably a fairly similar age but like the internet was so exciting for me as a teenager because it was a door to worlds that i couldn't explore previously right like you could you know, you could find out about things, uh, you know, that are happening in, in Europe or the States that, re you know, outside of, you know, like a, a, a fanzine at the, at the record store, or like a, you know, dubbed VHS, you just wouldn't have access to it. So it was this great kind of like, wow, um, tool. And it still is. And, it's the, and in the last 20 years, the way it's been, I suppose, where our attention is, where the folk, where most people's daily focus is, has come back to a few small areas, right? The Facebooks of the world, etc. But everything is still there. And it's amazing what, you know, all these strange cultures that have grown out of the internet. And it, it, it's, I suppose, disappointing that we do put our focus into the negatives, really, and, and have become pol seemingly more polarized. I don't know if we're more polarized or it's just out in the open more. I'm not, I'm not sure. But it's still exciting. It frustrates me that, that people have this negative attitude towards it. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes down to that Generation X and Millennials are quite cynical. Um, that's, that's sort of in the fabric of the generation, but Generation Z isn't. Uh, they're much more hopeful, and they're much more fluid in, sort, in all sorts of ways. And I think that's going to be really interesting as they take over, because one of the things that they're way more conscious of than, than we are is privacy, online privacy. So I think we're going to see new communities form online, which are gated communities and which are a bit uh, segmented and sequestered away for the sake of privacy, because, you know, it, it's 
I don't bother writing personal opinions on social media anymore because I'm just going to hurt someone's feelings and get in a row with them that I don't care about. So it's better off to, to do that. And the problem is that, you know, these echo chamber effects where you're only talking to people you agree with. I, I welcome disagreements because that's how you get new ideas. And I think people also need those sort of safe spaces to um, figure out what they think, experiment uh, and see where they land and then go out and share that with the world. And, and we're seeing a level of confidence in the newer generations around that, which is quite intimidating for uh, people of our generation. And it's sort of, and I think that's why there is a big reaction against them as well, because um, older generations are jealous. They're, they, they're like, it's not fair. <laughs> I had to go to college and do all these things to get what you're getting. And all you need is the device in your pocket. You know, you're starting a social enterprise or business when you're 15 and you can do it your own way. And I th again, from a punk mindset, that's amazing. You should be doing it your own way. Yeah, it is. The whole echo chamber thing is interesting. That's, it, pre-internet we still lived in echo chambers right it's just, it's just that it's, I, I suppose they're more focused now and the means of communication is so much more you know dynamic and fast that it's easier to see these things happen but I mean start, people people tend to sort of form tribes right that's what that's, that's what humans do so you always sort of end up with your people to a certain extent yeah and that whole idea that there's only 150 people that you can have in your in your tribe and so on and I think that's real you know but, the, but I'm from a small town in the middle of nowhere in Ireland where it wasn't much fun to be outside of the tribe there and that's why the internet was so great yeah. I could connect with people in first of all in Dublin then around the rest of the world and be able to uh, see that there was other people like me there was uh, people who, who didn't care about um, a conventional career about um, going to church about all these kind of things and that's um, one of the, one of the best things is those new communities you can form. I think there's there's some really exciting stuff coming out of uh, uh, you know different parts of the world where people are indoctrinated. Religion's a good example, but you know into one way of thinking, um, but have access to a world outside where they can actually see. Okay, well it's not it's it's not the same everywhere. Um, and I think that it's important for people to have those experiences. I mean, travel is obviously obviously travel a bit. Travel I think is probably the number one way to sort of get out of your, your bubble and your sort of, uh, you know, expand your worldview. Yeah, massively, because you start to get an idea that people live and think and act in different ways everywhere, and it's not, there isn't a set way of reality. Um, something really interesting that uh, Stephanie was talking about earlier in, in her talk was about how, uh, I think it was 60% of the world's youth is in Asia. Um, so that will be where a lot of the innovation and new thoughts happen. And um, language, you know, religion, culture, it really informs how we think. Um, if there isn't a word in the language, it's, it's very hard to have that thought yeah. so easily. And it's, it's why German is such a great language. There's brilliant uh, phrases in it that don't exist in English. And so I think we'll see uh, a different uh, point of view emerging from different areas in Asia, which challenge some of the preconceptions of, of Western mindsets. And we should, like, I, I feel like that's the core of what our education process should be. I was just speaking to um, Dom Pym, who runs UpBank. Um, he was talking about, you know, their focus has been around not trying to reinvent banking. Well, not, not trying to improve banking, but just reimagining it, right? Like just changing the experience. And I think often we fall into, say, studying marketing, for example. You go and you learn stuff that was probably taught in the 60s. And sure, some of it's a fair good foundation, but it's not really about challenging the status quo or about thinking differently. Um, it's just sort of, okay, well, here's the pathway. Whereas we should be giving people the tools to go like, wow, what's out there? You know, what, what, 
how, how can we make the world a better place? How can we make the world a more interesting place? There's, there's, there's infinite possibilities, but we don't really give that sort of... Uh, and you're right, it does feel as if the younger generation have a bit more of that in them. Yeah, and I think a lot of people had the experience that school wasn't all that pleasant. And you don't... Um, a lot of what you learn isn't applicable to your life. You know, it's there was really only two subjects that made sense to me, and that was English and history. Everything else, I probably gleaned some useful information out of them, but um, it, it doesn't do me much good. And I think that we're going to see a change, and we have to see a change in the education system of how it enables people to live in this world. Because p- more people than ever are asking uh, the really big questions, like, what's the point? What are we here for? What are we doing? It's not just to, you know, work up a consumed toy. It's to try new things, to travel, to experience something else, talk to people you haven't talked to before. And I think that's a lot of the... Uh, the, the friction we're seeing at the moment is people who are very attached to the old world and people who are embracing the new world and there's a gulf in between them and so like you said earlier uh, marketing is just storytelling and the way to bridge that gap is storytelling because it's it's very sad to me that there is no respect for older generations because wisdom comes from older generations and a lot of uh, you, you've seen what happened in Silicon Valley uh, there was all this idea get away with the old all about the new don't listen to old people it's only people in their 20s and what a mess they've made of that so I think there's room for everyone to have a voice and you're right I agree with you about the OK Boomer thing it's, it's funny but it is also I, as I get older you can start seeing like it's, it's harder to stay relevant it's hard to also just watch what's happening behind you because you know you're living your life and doing things you need to do um, but you wouldn't want to get to a position where you're 65, 70 and just feel like you know you have no relevance in the world anymore because you know you've got all that experience behind you we should be listening to our elders and, in, and instead of incorporating them more into our world I think yeah and it, it's such a huge difference between um, our parents generation and their relationship with their parents at that time you did not talk to your elders and betters if you uh, were asked you might be allowed to offer an opinion and that's wrong as well it should be uh, equality uh, between all people and there should be respect for new ideas in youth and there should be respect for old ideas and wisdom because, you know, it's, it's to paraphrase that old saying, those who um, forget history are condemned to repeat it. And so there's a lot to learn from going even just beyond our, our parents' generations, our ancestors and going very far back to traditional ways of doing things uh, here in Australia. Land, land management, indigenous land management. That's a way we could have avoided all this nonsense and the way we can avoid it in the future if we start listening and bringing that in. But um, that's, uh, that's not easy. That's a hard path and it's, it's one we're going to have to start walking down. Mm, yeah, there's, there's so many... I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but the, the, you know, the, the gap between, us, I suppose, the elderly and the young in Australia growing up is sort of, was very distinct, right? Like, and we don't, you don't live with your grandparents, you don't really live with your parents. I, mean, I don't see my parents as much as I should, really, thinking about it. Like other cultures, Mexico, for example, you know, it's much more integrated society where you're, you're probably still living with your, your grandparents and your parents and have a more stronger family unit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even on a global level, you know, we're all living all over the world, we're moving a lot. And so, especially here in Australia, there's so many immigrants that it's just a couple of generations, if you're lucky, that you have access to. A lot of us are on the other side of the world to our families. So it, it um, promotes this nuclear family way of, uh, of living, which I think isn't healthy for people. It's not good for kids, it's not good for the elderly. And I've, I've got young kids and a large part uh, of 
what influenced me to actually say, okay, let's have kids is I don't want to be one of those lonely people in my 60s or 70s, you know, in the future where I'm terrified and disenfranchised from the world because it's already happening and it's going to get uh, harder and harder for people to stay, stay connected and stay relevant. So your folks back in Ireland still, your family's back in Ireland. How, how do you feel about, um, so like I've, I've always communicated online like since I was 15, right, 14. And I, stu- I still use it as sort of a primary means of communication for, for most people and have pretty rich, I would say, relationships with people, you know, primarily online. We've got FaceTime and things now as well, but, you know, just, just through chat. Um, there's definitely a, a viewpoint for some of the older generation that didn't grow up with that, probably, you know, 45 plus, see that as kind of a, a bit more frivolous or, you know, not a, not a true kind of connection. I, I see that social media in its purest sense, should just be a way of actually being like, like I was living in, in London as well. You know, I had all my friends back here. Facebook was great then, right? I could share photos, I could talk. And I really used it as a means of communication as opposed to a, like a one-way platform. Um, how do you feel about, well, just in your own sense, like, you know, your kids growing up here and you've got grandparents back in, in how, do you, how do you bridge that gap? And does, te- does technology help? Yeah, things like Skype help a lot. Um, email, being able to share photos, WhatsApp, things like that. It makes you feel connected. And it means that they can um, enjoy to a greater degree what um, their grandchildren are going through, how they're developing. Like if you were moving to Australia 100 years ago, uh, that was it. See ya. We might see you in 20 or 30 years. You know, it would have taken six weeks on a, on a boat um, and you, you weren't coming back for, for the most part. And that's, uh, that, that's very sad, you know. So now we're actually able to keep those connections people can have a connection to their culture and my wife is um, half English half Indian so my children have a very broad cultural background that I want them to be able to access through their grandparents through their great-grandparents through stories and it's um, technology can allow that to happen you know it's it's a lot of uh, our information sources are were, were just print up to now and that was only a couple hundred years as well so uh, before that, it was oral history. So I hope we'll be able to uh, maintain and uh, hold on to those stories for a longer time, for many, many centuries and millennia into the future, where you'll be able to know, think, you know things which, again, double-edged swords, things like Ancestry.com, DNA testing, you'll be able to make those connections, um, which is fascinating, actually. This is a, a bit of a tangent, but um, my dad is adopted, um, and he recently found out through an Ancestry.com test who his family were, via a relative, uh, a great aunt of mine in Brisbane who did the test, we finally found out who his family are, and that's created a whole new side to the family where my sister and I were the youngest uh, of all the cousins from my mum's side. Now we found out we're the eldest of all the cousins from uh, my dad's side. So that sort of resituates your identity. And it's, um, I think that's going to come into the fore a lot because people are feeling a really profound meaninglessness in society of today. And they're going to be looking back to who they are, uh, looking to their blood, looking to their ancestors, to their history, and going, um, there has to be more to me than just this, you know, what I've found out on my own. And I think as well, it's something that I wasn't interested at all in my 20s or teens. But as I get, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm 38 in a couple of months, and now it's starting to have some relevance to me. Once I've had kids myself, I'm going, what's, what's our story, you know? What, what can we learn uh, to, to help us be ourselves? I think heritage is is a really interesting topic and it's not something that 
just thinking about my, my granddad came over from Wales in the, in the 60s, late 60s, and he never went back. He never saw his family ever again. He probably didn't even speak to them. I mean, he wasn't very good on the phone. So I imagine that, that's like a, that's a big decision to make. You're sort of just cutting that part of your life off and just starting something fresh. It's, uh, I mean, it's not something you can do today, really. I mean, I suppose you could, but nobody really does, right? We're, we're so connected. Um, but we don't have that connection. I have no idea what his dad did, right? I, I, don't, I don't even know. You know, three generations, four generations back, what who my family were but it, it's it's an interesting thing to sort of delve into yeah it, it's fascinating and um, a lot of the kind of conversation now is around not repeating the paths of your previous generations but that's only one half of the story what about the positive parts of them where I've only recently started finding out the histories of them uh, where uh, my mum had commissioned um, a genealogist to look into the history and they were able to trace it back to um Norman, Cambro Norman from Wales as well, uh, um, invasion of Ireland. It goes all the way back there, and you know, the, the closer we get to now, the more information there is. But I found out all these things about my, uh, my family who have very similar traits and stories uh, to myself and to my family members. And I'm going, wow, this uh, rebellious streak or this um, inability to, to um, put up with, um, what's the word? Just, just not able to... Uh, Bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Bullshit <laughs> or, or unfair, uh, unfair power, uh, things like that. There's a whole history of that in my family. And I'm like, I'm not a black sheep. I'm not a troublemaker. It's, it's my history. It's, it's in my veins. Uh, people have been agitating for centuries for, for freedom and for liberation. And you go, it gives you a sort of a personal mandate to go, yeah, this isn't me just uh, making trouble. This is me doing what I, I'm born to do. Mm, it's in your blood, literally. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Um, nice one, mate. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. But if people want to find out more about uh, the things you're working on, where can they, where can they find you? Go to purposecommunications.com.au and you can contact me there. And uh, I'm always happy to chat with people. Awesome. Pleasure having you on. Cool. Thank you. Lovely to be on. Hey, everybody. Sam here again. Thank you so much, Cormac. Uh, That was fantastic having that conversation. If you do want to find out more about Cormac, you can head to purposecommunications.com.au. And as always, thanks to PauseFest for having us along. Tickets for PauseFest 2021 are still on sale now. So you can head to pause.com.au or just Google PauseFest, check out their social media. There are some incredible speakers in this digital-only event that is happening in this COVID world of 2021. So again, thanks to Cormac and all the crew at Pause. And uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it around your friends and colleagues. Until next time, Sam signing out from Humans Aren't Robots. Cheers.